0: you've got people that are collaborating but they don't know what they're collaborating on you get lots of really stupid questions and what you end up doing is at best you can play devil's advocate but you can't give respectful dissent because you've not got enough context and so you end up sending it in a spiral down when your intention is to send it on a spiral up so what we say to people is you need to work out what that mix is for you but you have to have your time to yourself To get your work done so that you can contribute your unique viewpoint to the table otherwise at best we're going to have consensus which takes forever and sadly looks a lot like collaboration but isn't when actually what we want is collaboration we want that sparring and angst and discussion and heated debate but you can only do that if you're present and you know the context of what you're doing
1: this is a high energy coffee pod packed with pragmatic advice Our guest is Dom Price. He's the head of research and development and the work futurist at Atlassian. Atlassian's an Australian-founded software company that's taken the world by storm, one of our true success stories. And Dom's at the forefront of their cutting-edge work around teams, leadership, culture, and high performance. In fact, he's such a recognised thought leader, he's now out there teaching companies around the world using Atlassian's playbooks. A must-listen for anyone leading a team or thinking about how this world of work conversation might play out and impact them. Here's Dom.
2: Dom Price, welcome to Coffee Pods. I'm thrilled to have you on and have the opportunity to talk to you. This is one of the conversations I've been most looking forward to. And you're, you're showing me your coffee mug as, as we have a chat. <laughs> uh, because ever since I first met you, one of the things I love about you, firstly, is every time we talk, I learn something. And secondly, every time we talk, you're such a straight shooter. I love that you cut through what I feel like is so much buzz and chatter and just hyperbole and you get through to how do we actually get shit done. So I'm excited to have you on here Uh, and I love your term, you're head of R&D and you're a work futurist. I kind (laughs) of wanted to kick off there. Uh, How particularly do you see R&D and the world of work, what's the importance of that role and where do you see it going?
0: um that's a great question um so there's two parts of the title because there's two parts of my role the first part is as atlassian scales and grows we never want to be famous for being big we want to be famous for being awesome so we have to continually change the way we get work done right we what was successful for us three years ago will give us a dividend this year but not the dividend we want and so we have to unlearn to to relearn new stuff as we do that and scale we decided uh, about a year ago that it made sense to go and share the lessons that we've learned with our customers and with the general public because we, we genuinely want to unleash the potential in teams and there's no better way of doing that than sharing the knowledge. So we have this view that the knowledge is ubiquitous like it, it and it should be free. The application of that knowledge is the hard thing, but the knowledge itself shouldn't be hoarded or, or kept as a secret source. So half of my role is in the future uh, with my crystal ball where I get to go and tell other organizations how we've scaled and help them learn their environment, the mistakes they might be making, the things they can try, often quite tactical and media action-orientated things. The genuine brilliance is when I see them do that, I get to take that lesson back into Atlassian to evolve how we work, which I then get to go and tell externally, which I then go back internally. So it's, it's this very tight loop. And the reason that's important is, That's the way we work internally. So I've just mimicked it the way we work externally. And it's very similar to our business model. So it means that in doing that activity, there's a low amount of friction or drag from the organization trying to stop me or slow me down. I have the freedom to go and do that and spend a huge amount of time helping other teams. But using that lesson, whether it be good or bad, using that lesson to help us improve internally.
2: I love that. And let's pick up on that work future bit first. What do you think is the most overspruicked or overhyped part of the future of work conversation we're having? And what do you think is the bit we're not talking about enough?
0: Oh, that's an easy question and a controversial one in both parts, Holly. (laughs) Um, The the most overspruicked bit is the whole tech piece, right? Um, If you look at the last hundred years, tech has caused disruption for a hundred years in jobs, right? That's not new. If you look at the stats, technology has created more jobs in the last 144 years than it's displaced. The problem is there has been a mass displacement. So you know, there are huge industries that have been massively impacted and huge industries created. And the thing that we've been terrible at in the past is understanding where that shift will occur. And if you look at the data we have available, the insights, the allegedly smart people who are all talking about the future, we should be really good at trying to understand what, what those levers might be, what roles are likely to shrink, and what roles are likely to, to, uh, to, to increase. And the thing that's frustrating me is we're not using those insights. So if I look at autonomous vehicles, it's a popular conversation. Yeah, What impact will autonomous vehicles have on drivers? And there's a huge amount of people ruminating, stroking their chin, giving their view, often in a very biased fashion. No one's gone to Rio Tinto, where three years ago they got rid of drivers, And every single truck in Rio Tinto in Queensland is driven by an autonomous robot, right? No one's gone there and said, what happened? What did you learn? Uh, What roles did you need more of? What did you do with your driving? Like, no one's gone and done that. And so it frustrates me that we're choosing to almost repeat the same mistakes as the past. And we'd rather let the events occur and then say, I told you so. Whereas I think we've got a unique amount of information and insight to actually take action. The problem we have is we're all looking at the other person to take action. Should it be government? Should it be education? Should it be business? Should it be some committee somewhere? Should it be a forum? And everyone's looking for each other and no one's making the move. And yet the information's there potentially ready to slap us in the face. And then I think that the bit that we're not talking about enough is the human aspect. And I made a statement to someone the other week, in fact, to a room of people that brought the room to a grinding halt everyone was, the, the topic was, uh, a robot's going to take your job. And I let them go on for about 10 minutes. And it came to me, it was the most quiet, you wouldn't believe it, it me quiet for 10 minutes. um <laughs> it, came around, it came around to me and I said, I've got some news for all of you, a robot isn't going to steal your job. Peter will. And we're like, what? And I was like, there's more CEOs called Peter in the ASX 100 than there are women. And there's more CEOs called Peter than there are Steve. And I I said, so let's, let's, let's be honest about this. If we have this honest conversation, a robot won't take your job. The decision will be made by Peter. So why aren't we appealing to Peter? Why aren't we having that conversation? Because business and people in business will make the decision to replace humans with robots. The robot won't make that call. And so the thing that we need to be aware of, if we're honest about that, is... How do we make sure that Peter has a diverse set of people around him in making that decision? Because if, it, if that's not a cognitively diverse group, those decisions become foundational and we're all screwed because we'll end up in situations like the very first airbag that was invented, and it's a great invention, but it was invented by a group of male scientists who put the pressure set, the average weight of eight male scientists. And so it injured lots of women and children. And Google face recognition, when that recently came out, and and identified that you know uh, black and, and and Native Americans as being gorillas because they didn't have any Afro Caribbeans or Americans in their group, and so it's it's never, in my experience so far, it's not malicious intent that creates some of these these bad decisions. It's just lack of awareness. But we can solve lack of awareness. By surrounding ourselves with cognitively diverse people that say no, that's not okay, or have you thought about this, or have we thought about that? And if you've not got those people there, I think we're going to make some make some very blinkered decisions.
2: So I love this term cognitive diversity, and, and you using it. I watched an interview with you last week, and it was the first time I'd heard someone using it out there quite publicly. Because I feel like diversity has kind of been uh, taken away and really focused solely almost on on the female diversity conversation for some time. Yeah. But we have been talking about this for a really long time. So that lack of awareness, you know, when you talk about unleashing the power of teams and actually setting up diversity in organisations, where are we going wrong that that's still not happening?
0: Um, I think the main mistake, well, there's, there's two mistakes I'm seeing on repeat. Um, one is lots of talk about it and not much action, um, which I'm sure you're familiar with and you will have seen as well. Oh, yeah. A whole lot of people that are they're getting the posters up for when the board walk around the office Um They've updated some job interviews to put it in there because it looks good. They've probably made a value out of it uh, just because it's expected. But it starts to be tokenist. And we we don't want, like, you can't make this token. It's going to be real. So that's the first mistake. The second mistake, which is this notion of I'm doing it well, but I'm tricking you. So I can tell you that Atlassian's 40% female. And you would be like, wow, that is really impressive for tech. What I don't tell you is they're all in marketing finance and HR and our product teams have got no women in it. And you're like, well, actually that's not diversity then because if if it's like, it's like the, I, I, I relate it to the school disco we went to when we were 13. It was diverse because it was equal parts boys and girls, but the boys were one side of the sports hall and the girls were the other and the two shall never meet. Right? You just stand there and look at each other. And organisations do that, but their statistics look diverse. So one of the things that we've been doing, uh, we, we launched this I think about a year and a half ago, is reporting uh, gender diversity at the team level. because it's the team that needs to be diverse. Right? There's no point having tokenist groups that, that over over sort of subscribing stats. It's going to be diverse within the people that are connecting and doing the work together. So we look at it at a team like at a molecular level because that's where we think we get the most impact.
2: Now, teams is a word I've heard you use multiple times already and, and you're a firm believer that the future of work is all about unleashing the power of teams. What was the experience or the insight and when did that happen in your career that convinced you of that? And, and I guess the second <laughs> bit is how do we do that? How do we unleash that?
0: Yeah, I, I realised it not only enough... Because uh, I, I, as a, a larger-than-life alpha male, uh, <laughs> have the fundamental ability to believe my own bullshit, and so it took a number of years of me being a complete prick for a really good mentor to kind of sit me down and, and have that jolting conversation with me. Um, and and I survived three years in London, which luckily I was surrounded by a whole lot of other egotistical people, so I didn't stand out as being bad. I was just the same as them. <laughs> it was actually when I came to Australia, and I was working the same way I've been working in London, you know, where everyone's got their initials on the cufflinks and everyone's a big swinging, whatever. Um, and I arrived in, in Sydney trying to do the same thing. And all I can remember was these people being like, bloody the hell, what's he? <laughs> <laughs> He's a bit shit. Um, and so I, I had this mentor who kind of sat me down and was trying to help me. The idea was they were helping me acclimatise to the Australian business world. But really that was just subterfuge. What they were doing was just helping me not be an arse anymore and understand that, that I could round out my style without changing who I was. And in doing that, I went with them and I went with a few other people. And then I, I remember it kind of clicking in the back of my head but not making any sense. And, and so I think I just didn't really comprehend uh, or, or truly understand it. But then throughout the rest of my time, that was with, with Deloitte and then roles that I had after that, I realized that when I went after stuff by myself, I was limiting my, my ability. I could only get so, it doesn't matter how fast or how long I ran for, I could only get so far. And I found it really frustrating. And then when I let go and let other people run with me, we went a lot further. The thing that made that uncomfortable for me was losing control. And I was like, well, if I lose control as a senior leader, if I lose control, surely that's bad. But then I I kept on doing these experiments going, but the more I let go, the better things happen. So this is really confusing. So which one do I do? It only really made sense when I joined Atlassian because what I realized was most organizations misuse the word team to mean department or function, right? It's the thing that you identify with. In the Atlassian world, we use the word team to say the cross-functional people that you work with to get the same goal, the same mission, the same initiative complete. And when you think about it that way, you're like, ah, oh, mm. oh, that's different. So it's not, it's not who I report to. It's not about kissing the boss's ass, And it's not the political stakeholder engagement, as they call it in project management, where you go around one by one, at every single person to try and find out their view and blockade them. It's not that. It's saying, laterally, who are the people I need to work with and, and get on board and, and, and inspire and share and, and collaborate with to make this a real thing? And so you change your view 90 degrees and you go, it's more important who I work with and it's less important who I work for. And when you have that realisation, it frees up a ridiculous amount of time you spend investing. And it's not a good investment, wasted on politics. And you spend that instead with your peers on getting shit done. And as you do that, you learn new patterns for getting stuff done and you get faster and you learn more. I learn infinitely more from the people around me than I do from the people above. And that's not because the people above are stupid. It's just they're very similar to me. They perform a similar role at a higher level. I can learn 5% from them. But when I go hang out with uh, Sarah and Kelly from marketing, one who's a content writer, one who's this amazing website designer and user experience creator, when I spend time with them, they take me out of my comfort zone. And they are skills that I will never have. And so when we work together, that's complementary. It's like, whoa, this is, this is amazing. This is when I hang out with my boss, we talk a lot about the same thing and not. That's homogenous, and I'm not learning as much. Yes, it's comfortable, and yes, I need their guidance and wisdom every now and then, But I don't get as much value from that as I do laterally. But to, to value that lateral stuff, you have to get over yourself because the insecurity of most leaders is they look up, and in looking up, they think they're always going to learn from above, and I think that's foolish. I, I learned from our graduates. I learn from my peers, and I learn from the people. But if you're only going to one well, you're you going to get thirsty. But I've got I've got 2,000 wells that I can source from.
2: And it's part of that, that that piece around needing to get comfortable outside of your comfort zone as well,
0: yeah, and it's it's not just like as a phrase I hear that a lot and often I don't. I think people nod and go, yeah, no, I'm really good at that, and they don't know what it means. With with leaders that I've been working with recently, the experience I share is the first step for me in getting out of my comfort zone was getting over myself. And I, I was the barrier to that, right? You know, I, I was the overly confident, assured, you know, idiot that wasn't going to listen to anyone else. So for me to get out of my comfort zone, the very first lesson for me was shut my mouth and open the two things on the side and listen. And I'm like, yeah, I do that all the time. And then the next kind of 10 meetings I went into, I realized I never do that. So I stopped. I'm like, so it sort of gave me a, uh, a tip. She said, sit on your hands for a meeting because you, you don't realize like you use your hands a lot with your mouth. So if you sit on your hands, you won't speak. And I did. And I was like, how cool is this? I mean, I got numb hands, but I was like, I sat on my hands for an entire meeting and just listened. And, and I remember sitting there thinking, this is stuff I've learned here I would never have heard because I was too busy sharing my view. I already know my view. I knew my view when I walked into the meeting. So me sharing that for an hour is, no, is not valuable.
2: And I love the fact as well, one of the things uh, that you were just talking about with me earlier, you've been all around the world this year, you've been putting yourselves in in all sorts of different environments to learn from other people. How how do you make sure you're intentional around that? Because we get caught up in the busyness of work and everything else that's going on in life and it's really easy because it's not got an outcome or it's not in your KPIs for work that you've got to achieve for the quarter or the year to not focus on the stuff that's actually going to grow you, push you outside of your comfort zone, be a lateral opportunity that may or may not have a direct benefit. How do you make sure you and the people that work with you are really focused on that?
0: So I, I, have, a, I have a little trick that I'll share with you and you're not allowed to share with anyone else. <laughs> um, so I have this mental model I do every quarter. Uh, it's my three by three. Okay. So my, my three across are Time Horizon 1, Time Horizon 2, Time Horizon 3, uh, and my three along, uh, along the side, uh, me, my team, and at last, there's an organisation. Cool. And I map out my quarter. What are the activities I'm going to do and where am I investing? And so I've always got some things top right. They are for my team or for Atlassian and their time horizon three, they're going to pay off in a year. They're the long-term outcome bets. And then there's there's the bottom left-hand corner. They're the things for me for today. They're very transactional. What I do is notionally when I'm shifting boxes, I change the way I act. So for the transactional stuff, it's scrappy, it's quick, do it, move on. There's very little to be learned there. My main goal with the transactional stuff is how can I prevent it occurring again? How can I automate it and make it go away? Mm Because it's not massively valuable. It's addictive because it's instant gratification and it's an output, but it's not that valuable. And I'm never going to grow doing more of that. The problem with the top right box is it's highly speculative, but it also needs a completely different mindset. So when I go to events or functions where I'm top right, what I do is say to myself, I need to give myself equal parts consumption and equal parts reflection. So I did an event in LA recently uh, with Red Bull, with a whole of elite sports, uh, scientists, military, COOs, startups, entrepreneurs, a whole of people. And I knew that I would consume a huge amount in that day, but actually I, I invested as much time afterwards in understanding what did I learn? What can I challenge? What foundations does that really go against? Uh, what might i do differently um what else could i go and read or consume to go deeper in any of those topics and i give myself that time now way too many leaders in my experience see that as a waste because there's no there's no work being produced but if i don't give my brain and my heart and my intuition time to consume that then it's just surface level it's not made it inside and so if i'm going to invest 24 hours in the event there's no harm investing 24 hours in consuming from that event, and it, it was, makes complete sense.
2: It was interesting. I was reading a piece you'd written uh, a couple of months ago and you were talking about this piece around how important deep work is to running effective yes. teams. Talk a little bit more about that because I thought that was a really interesting insight.
0: So it's the classic pendulum swing. Like I think I think we've become, I think in business, we've almost become too fashion conscious. And every time a new phrase becomes fashionable, we go and double down on it or double click on it and completely get it wrong. Uh, you'll you see it with innovation where you've got the Innovate Magic 8 Balls and Innovate T-shirts and I'm on the Innovation Council. There's the Innovation Room with Post-it Notes. And, and you see it with every every pendulum, right? And so with, with collaboration, I've seen the same pendulum. I want to go, all right, uh, I've read an article in the Harvard Business Review uh, that says collaboration is So from now on, everyone... Collaborate. And what people do is they go, everything must be done in a team. That big, dumb guy said cognitive diversity is important and they make collaboration. So everything has to be collaboration. I said, no, 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 no. When I say collaboration is valuable, it's an and conversation, not an or conversation. Collaboration is valuable for specific transactions where you want to spar with someone, where you want to diverge, where you want to be challenged, where you want to learn. Uh, where you want to be uncomfortable, that's when collaboration is really valuable. When you have tasks to do, so after you've done the collaboration, the likelihood is you've got a set of tasks or activities. And that's, you don't need everyone around you prodding you or talking to you to do that. Often you need me time. So we talk about the me in team is actually really valuable. And what, what you understand is if you get that balance wrong, if all you do is collaborate, you're not bringing your best self to the table because you're not ready to collaborate, because your brain's not in the right place. If you give yourself the right amount of me time, and it's different for everyone, what that means is I get to get my activities done, my tasks, my updates, my jobs. And in doing that, I arrive for the collaboration in the zone. I've read my material in advance, I know the topic, I'm ready to be disproven. I'm ready to challenge, right? And you know when you get people in that zone, because your collaboration becomes this, you build on top of each other, like the energy there, the the kind of challenge, the the positive acts, the respectful dissent. People feel very present and very energised. When you've got people that are collaborating, but they don't know what they're collaborating on, you get lots of really stupid questions. Mm. And what you end up doing is, at best, you can play devil's advocate, but you can't give respectful dissent because you've not got enough context. And so you end up sending it in a spiral down when your intention is to send it on a spiral up. So what we say to people is, you need to work out what that mix is for you. But you have to have your time to yourself to get your work done so that you can contribute your unique viewpoint to the table. Otherwise, at best, we're going to have consensus, which takes forever, and sadly looks a lot like collaboration but isn't, when actually what we want is collaboration. We want that sparring and angst and discussion and heated debate. But you can only really do that if you're present and you know the context of what you're doing.
2: So part of the, the challenge, I think, with a lot of this is people do hear terms like agile and innovation and all these things thrown around. And, and I think intellectually, they get it. They go, oh, that sounds like a good idea. That makes a lot of sense. The world's changing fast. But there's this inertia or this breakdown in, yeah, but how do I actually go do that? And how do I not make sure that I'm, I'm taking these ideas and throwing them willy-nilly into my company when maybe they don't fit? So from a practical starting point, baby step-wise, what, what are the first couple of things you think any leader leading any team or company can be doing right now to actually make this stuff work for them?
0: Yeah, so I, I think that if you flip that slightly, the mistake they make is is in going to an airport lounge, they go and buy the book that's highest on the shelf. They read it go, wow, that company that bears no resemblance to mine did it really well. I'll just copy what they did. And then uh, epically fail and go back to the way they've always worked. So that's that's the mistake. Is I think people go hunting for a religion. They go hunting for the silver bullet. Um, if we implement design thinking, we'll be we'll be the leader in our in our section. If we implement agile, we'll be the most nimble organisation ever. And and what they don't understand is that that dynamic is based on three things: the people you've got, the practices you employ, and the products or tools that you use. And what I've seen in leaders is they tend to pick one of those and go and tweak it, and it doesn't work because it's not congruent with the other two. So they go, ah, oh, uh, I've read about Agile, so I'm going to go buy a whole of Agile tools, and I'm going to implement all the Agile rituals, right? We're doing stand-ups and, and backlog grooming and sprint planning. And you've got all these people you've hired that are like waterfall people going, you're doing what? And all you're going to do is bring out the worst in them. Like you've hired them because they're great uh, Making lasagna, and you're like, here's some noodles and some hoisin sauce, and they're like, no, 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 I'm a lasagna maker, and it's just not fair. And so what I say to people is, if you don't understand those three things in congruence and find a way of moving them progressively, you're probably going to get it wrong. Or if you pick the silver bullet, you'll get it wrong. Now that doesn't help them with getting it right, but it helps them avoid those mistakes. The getting it right is keep it really small and simple. And so there's two things that I've been working with our leaders at Atlassian on and also leaders externally. The first one is go and understand your environment. Like your, your environment is unique and you have to go and get a comprehension of that. Not what you assume to be true, but have walked the floors almost and what is true. Um, how do your people interact? What is their workload like? What's the mix of me work and uh, collaboration? Uh, what, what's our kind of rituals around meetings? Is everyone in meetings all day and gets the work done at night? What are our rituals around email and sharing information? And you get a feel for all that, for how work gets done in your environment. And then you have to look externally. What does our external environment look like in terms of our suppliers? What our customers expect? What our competition are doing? When you get those two things and you get them similar, you're on a winner. If you do that in small bite-sized chunks. If you don't, what tends to happen is you jump the solutions. You, you you start with the solution and then you go and find a problem to match that solution. And it's what most organization transformation or change programs look like. Someone's found the solution and gone, oh, I've just bought this thing. Now we need to go and find a problem to solve. And they don't get it right. So the way we've done that is with our team playbook that we've published, we've got the health monitors in there, which we use with teams to say, how do you understand your environment of how you work as a team? And we've got three team types, project teams, leadership teams, which are very impactful if they get it right, very impactful in the wrong way if they get it wrong, and service teams. And then we've documented our plays or workshops or templates or techniques, which are those bite-sized chunks of how do you get started. So a quick example, one of the areas of uh, of the project team health monitor is, do we have a shared understanding of why we're doing this project? And we did that exercise with the whole of the team. like, no, we know what we're doing, but we don't know why. I was like, awesome. So one of the things we created was a project poster. What is the problem you're solving? What's the impact of that problem? What's your proposed solution? And what are the assumptions that you know or that you need to go and clarify? And what we did with the whole of the teams was we got them to do that exercise, five-minute exercise, got them to do it separately, and then we did the compare and contrast. Even when they had the same solution, they were solving different problems. And so what that meant was, over time, they were going to diverge. Admittedly, on day one, it looked similar, but by day 30, they were going to solve completely different problems. And so their solution would have ended up smelling, tasting a little bit different. So it enables us just to bring it back to basic conversation. And the interesting thing is, that gives us value, without changing any technology, location, tooling pay, reward, recognition, all those go. It's just, as humans, have we found a way of conversing and working together? And it sounds logical and easy, but if we don't unlock our potential as humans working with other humans, then the robots will take over. Like, we don't need to be in battle and combat with other humans. We need to find that trust and the respect and the psychological safety and have those tough conversations. And we use the health monitor as a disarming tool or technique to do that.
2: You made particular mention when you were going through the different teams there of leaders and the incredibly negative or the incredibly positive role that they can play. And one of the things I know you talk about a lot is just how dramatically what we need from leaders is shifting. Uh, Talk a little bit about that because I know this is a topic you love to unleash on.
0: Yeah, so I've I've had some good arguments with people about it, a healthy argument with people about it. So I, I have a belief that the role of the manager uh, it wasn't created by nature, it was created by bureaucracy and, and uh, probably by a senior white leader in 1920s, 19, 1930s, 19, right? And, and that world was very different than the world we're in now. The, the world then was a, a, a white male dominated workforce, uh, whereas now we've got this cognitively diverse and gender diverse uh, workforce. It was a workforce that only used their hands, now we use our head and our heart, our own intuition. Um, and it was a workforce where you rewarded people for, for generating outputs like on repeat, and everything was predictable, and now the world is about creativity and curiosity. And yet that role of the manager has stayed the same throughout. So I, I don't like that notion of the manager that is the, the paper pusher, the task manager, the, the person that's the conduit between the leader and me to get work done. I, I, I don't need them. I, I can, I'm can i self-sufficient. But I still need that leader. So what, do, what does that role of leader mean? So um, essentially, I'm split it into two things. Half the role of the leader is to set the vision, the North Star, uh, the purpose, the inspiration, that really the whole team should be able to get behind. It's this meta-level outcome that you're going to achieve. It should, be, um, it should be ambitious. It should be a little bit ambiguous. It should be challenging. It should get you in the head and the heart and the hands. Right? It's, it's setting that inspirational vision. And then the second part of their job is to be a, a true leader, which is a coach and a mentor and a, and a, and a, a guide. Right? They're there to provide a guide or, or a, or a uh, guardrails into how you get your work done. And then the third thing they need to do is to get out of the way. And that's the hardest part, because the first two are all consistent with, if you look at Dan Pink's work around autonomy and mastery and purpose, or anyone else's work on that topic, The first two parts are all consistent with that. The third part is this weird desire we have as humans to get confidence when we're uncertain. And so what we saw is after we produced this definition of leaders, what we saw was we've got great leaders who understand autonomy and empowerment, and they're setting a great vision, and they're mentoring and coaching. And then like the third week of the month or the second month of the quarter, they wake up a little bit nervous. What if something's gone wrong? And the inner control freak that exists in all of us comes out and they decide they're going to micromanage. And so we coined the phrase the pigeon boss. So the pigeon boss has great intent and then they get nervous, they fly into the team, shit everywhere, and then fly out. And and they don't do it to be malicious, but they walk in and, and we will go, oh, holly, uh, nice, nice bookshelf, brown, interesting color. And then they walk off and you're like, Oh, they don't like it. Uh, they don't like the brown bookshelf. Like maybe, maybe it's where the bookshelf is or maybe I should, you know, I should get it black or it should be natural. And you start doubting yourself. It's nothing to do with the purpose. It's nothing to do with what you're delivering. It's this accidental distraction that sends you down a complete rabbit warren. And so the Pigeon Boss was something we coined. And the way we've unraveled the Pigeon Boss is to say the thing you're really missing, the root cause of that is confidence. How can you agree with your team what the right communication channel is for you to get that confidence without you being overbearing. And it sounds like a simple discussion, but if if you're any leader in any organisation, just stop right now and on the back of a napkin, assess how long you spend doing, sharing, and updating status reports. Status reports that do not change a single outcome or activity, but merely report something in the past. So I've set that challenge to someone the other week in an organization and she came back and said, I've just found a whole new role that exists in my organization. It's called the scoreboard attendant. <sighs> they, tell, they tell me that we're 3-1 down at half time, but they cannot for the life of them tell me what to do to get back to a draw or to win. But they can tell me it's definitely 3-1. Like they are highly confident in the score, but they're doing nothing to impact that score. Mm. And, and she went and found a whole lot of people. She's like, and they're good people the organizations train them to do that. And so you end up like, the the minute I hear the phrase version of the truth, I'm like, the irony, there is the truth or not truth. The minute you use the word versions, by definition, you've not got truth anymore. Like, which source of the truth are you looking at? There's only one. It's the truth. Everything else is a misstatement of the truth. And so we end up with all this status reporting and, and stuff that actually all it's designed to do is to give management, not leaders, to give management a comfort blanket or someone to blame when something goes wrong. When your role as a leader is to drive the business, drive and inspire your teams and be a true leader, you don't need status reports every five minutes.
2: I love that. I love the scoreboard analogy. I've never thought of it like that, but I think that's such a, a great Ooh. way of encapsulating it. You, you touched on there uh, and you've t- touched on it a couple of times talking about lasagna makers earlier, what we hire and what we train people for. This is a conversation I have particularly with young people and with parents who are looking at the world of work that their children are heading out into. And there's all these mixed conversations around, you know, does the academic transcript still matter? What, What can I do to best position myself to get an opportunity? You're someone who's interviewing people, scores of people every other week, making hiring decisions at a company as well that's sort of one of the leading lights of probably where a lot of young people would aspire and love to work. What is it? Cutting through the the BS that's going on around this conversation. What are you looking for? And for people out there going, I want to make sure I'm competitive in this future state. What can they be doing?
0: Oh, that's great. So there's, I think again, if I follow the same pattern, the mistake people make is they tend to focus on one thing, whereas what we're looking for is and. Right? It's, it's always a composition. Um, if I think about some of the people we've we've interviewed that not hired, they are technical geniuses that have got no skills to be able to communicate that, to share it, to collaborate, to ever be wrong, uh, to work in a team, right? They are just solo operators. And and that doesn't scale for us. Like it's all about how we work together and communicate laterally. So, you know, someone can't do that. It's just, you can't be a genius by yourself in a small pocket. All right. I'm I'm not, I'm not going to hire the technical asshole. I I don't want a really smart idiot. It's just, it's not going to work in my organization. Similarly, we get a whole of people that have amazing what you'd call people skills um, and they're really, really nice people. You're like, you're super cool. I would love you in my organisation if you had a skill other than just being really nice. And so it's like, like values-wise and culturally you'd be an amazing hire. I just don't know what your job would be because you've not got a a deep skill in anything. And it's it's not that they're a generalist. It's just they've not got that skill. What we're looking for is that composite because for us, the idea that you can bring your technical skills and you've got this desire to grow and to learn more. You understand the foundations of why you do what you do, but you're willing to be challenged on how you do it. Mm, and the, the, the E word, the empathy word around, if I look at our engineers as an example, when we start graduate engineers, we put them through think like a product manager and think like a designer bootcamp classes internally. And a couple of years ago, one of the engineers is like uh, uh, Dom, uh just wanna point out a mistake you've made. I'm an engineer. I'm like, hey, no shit, Sherlock. <laughs> you're looking at your own, you're looking at your own feet. Of course you are. Um and he said, I'm an engineer, and but you put me on this design course. And I said, Yes, your entire career here, you're gonna be working with designers and product managers. Now, you might never be one, but if you could just spend today walking in their shoes, the empathy you will build for their role and their world will be invaluable for you for the rest of your career. And so he grasped that like there was, no, there was no battle, there was no fight. He, he launched into it two-footed. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to get people who can go broad as well as deep. And that combination of being able to sense when the right time to do one or the other, that's an important sense because I can't go around 2,000 people and tell them when it's the right time to do that. I need them to self-select. Yeah. So one of the examples is we give all of our staff, if you use Australia as an example, $3,000 a year for personal development and learning. They can just go and spend that. And it's funny how occasionally, like the first time they're going to use it, there's the guilt. Like, can I really use it? Is it for real? And then there's the, where's the menu that I pick from? <laughs> and I'm like, I can't give you a menu because you're different than the person next to you. So what you need to do is you need to look at your career. You need to be having a one-on-one conversation about your personal development. You need to know your weak spots and your strengths. Do you want to double down on strength or do you want to protect your weakness? Like you need to go and plan that. All I'm gonna do is support you in delivering on it. And so I can't teach that. That that aptitude, that that sort of confidence and curiosity and creativity and willingness to own your own career. That's something that's either in someone or not. Love Whereas that. the technical stuff is actually easier to teach and changes quite quickly. So we're just trying to look for people that you know that they, they, they've got that, they've got those smarts. Um, my, my favorite terminology uh patty mccord from netflix uses this she calls them fully formed adults and (laughs) fully formed adults is not a generational or age thing no it's just saying are you are you an adult like do you have awareness of the world around you do you understand the perception of you like and can you get stuff done and work with other people it sounds easy i know plenty of 50 60 year olds that aren't fully formed adults and plenty of 20 year olds that are so it's nothing to do with age i love that
2: fully formed adults that's a brilliant phrase now, I'm mindful we're getting towards the end of our time together. Two quick questions that I wanted to ask you to kind of finish up. First, for people that are sitting there that might have an idea of something they want to go do in the world to create or a way they could add value to an organization they're already working in, what's your biggest bit of advice for how to actually go turn that into action? What's, what's the step they can take you know, today or in the next week to, to turn that into action?
0: Brilliant. So I, I actually did this exercise the other week with a with a uh, a lady who I'm mentoring. Who's got an amazing idea and was getting very frustrated. And, and I, I had to just remind her, it's not your idea that's shit. Like your idea is awesome. The way you're communicating it is is not resonating. So let's solve that problem. Not don't, don't go and tweak the idea. The idea is fine. Let's tweak the delivery. Um. In essence, what she did was two things. She took our project poster off the team playbook and the forcing function of having to write that down in a logical, plain English, here's the problem, here's the impact, here's the solution, and what were the other solutions you could have gone for? Got her to think about it in a more logical sense. And then I gave her our personas. So the personas we use, again, they're on our website, say that you're never serving one customer or one stakeholder. So when our designers are building products, we decide which persona are we building it for. If it's Jira, are we building it for the user? or for the admin, or for the leader, or for the consumer, or like there's there's all these different personas. So I gave her the persona and said, do you know which one you're targeting? Who are you having the conversation with? And how will you tailor your conversation based on who you're talking to? And so what I was trying to build with her was this idea that it wasn't about the idea anymore. It was all about how she communicated the passion of the idea so that it stuck with someone else. And actually, it's more important what they hear and less important what you say. Mm. And she thought the two things were the same. And I'm like, sadly not. We can't control what the other person hears. We can control what we say. But if you're doing a pitch and you're trying to sell your idea and get feedback, you need to get inside that person's head and heart. Then you need to think like them and, and converse in a language that's familiar for them so that you get in there. Otherwise, you will leave happy that you've sold your story and they've heard none of it. And so the personas just gave her an opportunity to realize she was basing her pitch, because she was so passionate about it, basing her pitch on her view of the world, which is only one view. Not right or wrong, but only one. And so it made that conversation a bit more rounded. That was a 90-minute exercise. The, the project poster and the personas together is a 90-minute exercise. And it seemed like repeat to her. She's like, I've, I've done it. I've already got the business I got it Oh, no, it's all written in your words. Mm. The minute you go and write it in someone else's words, it's a lot harder because you're not talking about it just about you anymore. It's about the impact you're going to have on someone else. And when it was an impact and outcome conversation, the level of, of passion, the level of kind of visionary and, and genuine articulation of the problem was so much more profound than when it was a very practical idea.
2: Mm. I love that, the difference between what it is we say and what it is that people hear. And and just reflecting on that, thinking, how often are we mindful of checking that our message was received or listening to begin with so that we can inform it and make sure it lands? And I think that goes to the heart of a lot of what you've touched on today regarding yeah. diversity of viewpoints, actually listening, sitting on your hands while you're in a conversation yeah. and making sure that you're engaging with the person you're in conversation with. I love that. Uh, one I'm final question. Oh, like yeah. doing
0: that ourselves, like doing that ourselves. Like I, I forever get pissed off by people that don't listen. And I'm like, oh, do I? <laughs> Like, like if, if I'm going to the effort of changing my language to help them understand, I'm like, is this something I can do when someone's talking to me? Like that this is a two-way transaction. So I think we all like that. My, my day out of reflection is my way of saying I need listening time. So not only do we need to encourage that in others, we need to lead by example and do that ourselves. Mm. That's a lot harder.
2: Completely, isn't it? It's very. It's yeah. one thing to say it's another thing to practice what you preach. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so tell me, for those listening, what's your call to action? If you could get people fired up and doing anything different to the way they might have been going about their business up until now, what is it you'd be encouraging people to, to head out there and, and start doing or thinking or um, asking, whatever it might be?
0: Um, my, my, my one right now that I think just the nature of the amount of change we're going through with technology, with you know, the war for talent, with customer expectations, the rate of change, like all that massive stuff. I think the number one thing for me is to look back at your quarter or your year um, or your current role and find the three things that you can stop doing. If if we don't unlearn, if we don't take something out of the bucket, there is no room in the bucket for anything else. So throw away all the books that you're reading and all the thought leadership you consume on LinkedIn and all the mentoring advice you get because you have no capacity for it. So you're kidding yourself. If you don't take something out first, You cannot add anything in. So one of the rituals I'm doing right now every quarter is I do a personal retrospective. What did I love about the last quarter? What did I long for? And what did I loathe? The things that I longed for, I only give myself permission to start things if I stop things. So I have to take the loathed, and I have to stop them. And that's my permission to add in the longed for. I
2: love that. I think that idea of unlearning so that you can learn—that's such a, a powerful insight in an age where we are almost so overwhelmed with information that we can fail to realize sometimes that the capacity is not even there to take in a new way of doing things. Okay.
0: I've, I, and it's—I'm the best rationalizer in the world of my mind. I'm the one with the most power to convince myself that I have got capacity, but I know I haven't. So it's a futile conversation I often have with myself. It's a fun conversation, but futile. <laughs> the challenge is. When you do the, the loathed, yeah. the things that you want to stop, your mind naturally wants to look for things that are broken. And what I've realized is now, having done this for a number of quarters, I'm no longer stopping things that are broken. I'm stopping things that work but aren't going to increase my effectiveness. Mm-hmm. The hard thing in doing that is I stop something that has surety because I know it worked last quarter and I replace it with something without surety that is an experiment that's highly likely to fail. But if I don't embrace that exploration, I will never learn anything new. So, and if I don't do that, then people around me won't do that. So I can't mentor someone and go, you need to be more experimentation or fail more and explore, and then go and do exactly what I did last quarter. You, again, you said it yourself, you've got to practice what you preach. So I look for things where I say, yes, it worked last quarter, but the dividend it will pay me back this quarter is smaller than the dividend last quarter. Therefore, it gets removed and I'll replace it with something that might not pay as big a dividend next quarter, next year. I don't know. But if I don't try it, I will never know. Tom,
2: so, I mean, you're such a joy to talk to. I love how considered all this thinking is. Like the obviously the amount of time to speak to that deep learning idea you were talking about that you've spent thinking through this, debating it in conversation with people that might have divergent views. But I find it just so refreshing the way that you can cut through with how you communicate on this and the pragmatism behind what you're talking about. Stuff that's practical that people listening can go out and and do today, do tomorrow, encouraging their teams that can actually take forward some of these ideas. So thank you so much for spending some time with us today. For people who want to connect with you and Atlassian, where can they find you and what are the best channels to reach you?
0: Uh, At Dom Price on on Twitter or Dom Price on LinkedIn are the best places to find us. That's where we share a lot of our ideas. Um, We're very much about sharing things when they're half-baked. We do sometimes share things when they're finished, but very rarely we like to share our thoughts along the way. Uh, So either of those forums, you'll find a lot of our stories.
2: Brilliant. I encourage you to connect with Dom and we'll put all the information around the Atlassian playbook and, and the references Dom's made in our show notes to today's episode as well. Dom, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Holly, thank you for your time and thank you for being an inspiration.
1: Thanks for listening. I hope you feel inspired and have some practical ideas how you can go and fuel the difference you want to see in your life, organisation or community. If that's a yes, Please take a moment to send us feedback, shoot me a tweet at Holly Ransom, leave for a review for this coffee pod, or head to www.coffeepodswithholly.com and send in your questions and suggestions for future coffee pods. But for now, until our next coffee break, I've been Holly Ransom. Thanks for fueling your difference with me.